Well, good morning. My name, that, was, that was one of those, like, I, I don't know whether you're just trying to find your seat or you're not awake yet. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. There we go. My name is John Allen. Uh, welcome to Risen Church. Um, I, I've, you know how you, like, we're in, like, the, the, the age of binge-watching television shows, right? Like, this is, like, the Netflix world, the, like, Amazon Prime. Anybody seen that show uh, Alone? We've got one person. Anybody alone? Yeah? Alone? You know what I'm talking about? So it's, it, it is a show that it, it can be, um, it, it sucks you in. I've been watching this one recently. It sucks you in because it's essentially uh, just a bunch of people that are, they are dropped off in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes it's like British Columbia, right? Sometimes it's Patagonia. Like they get dropped off in the middle of nowhere with just a few tools to survive. Um, and, and they're left on their own. And the one who lasts the longest essentially is the one who wins. And they win a bunch of money. I don't know what it is, like $500,000 or something like that. But Often they end up starving, and they have to give up, and sometimes they're forced to give up because things are getting really dangerous, right? They're just like, they've got no food. And so it makes me think, and every time I watch it, I'm reminded of like times where I have maybe fasted and been praying or, or just uh, avoiding food in seasons of my life, and, and I'm like, I see these people, and it's like they just change. Like, have you ever been hungry? I mean, like, have you ever been really, really hungry, starving status hungry? Not many people actually have, at least in America, right? And so what happens is when these people, they're going sometimes weeks and weeks without eating anything. Like, maybe they're like, I found a snail or two, you know, or maybe some, like, these people are eating, like, pine needles, Right? And sometimes we get, you see that they're so hungry, right, that they start to get vulnerable. Like, it's consuming. Like, it's all they think about. They dream about food. They think about food. They're honestly, like, they're, they're vulnerable even to unwise decisions. Like, one of these guys, they, they'll, not one, often they'll find these dead animals and these, like, rotten corpses of animals. And they are like, should I eat it? I don't know. Is it going to kill me? It might. It might have like a brain flesh-eating disease in it or something. But you know what? I'm that hungry, so I'm going to risk it, right? And they do it. It's crazy. And some of them get really sick, and it's done. And so what you see is, again, they need this food. But the craziest thing about this show is that almost all of the people that quit, quit not because they're starving from food, but because they can't handle the isolation. They are literally alone. And so they quit because they can't handle being alone. Like, I, I'm still waiting for somebody to develop a, a Christian version of this and call it not alone. Seriously, I think about it all the time. And so this morning, we're going to continue through our series um, that we kicked off last week called Hunger and Thirst. And my hope for this series is that it will whet your appetites for the living God himself. And we're going to see that Jesus himself kind of went on this sort of his own sort of alone version, but it was a not alone. And so what we see is that he does actually feast upon his relationship with the Father throughout this circumstance, and that we are also, in fact, called to do the same. 
And so what we see is also that we, we are called to feast on the Father and the, our fellowship with the Father, not just the spiritual junk food of this world, but the all-satisfying feast that we have available in Christ, who is himself the bread of life. And he is the only one who can truly satisfy. And so last week we looked at Matthew 3 where suddenly you, you see a, a desert-dwelling man named John. You may know him as John the Baptist. He shows up out of the wilderness, out of the desert where he's been living, and he comes into the Jordan River, which again, get the visual here, the Jordan River is the boundary line between the desert or wilderness and Israel. Okay? And so he begins calling people to baptism and a baptism of repentance. And he says, in Matthew 3, uh, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we see that John the Baptist was actually wetting their appetites for the coming Messiah. He was wetting their appetites and preparing their hearts to long for, yearn for Jesus the Christ. He's saying, turn away from the junk food that you're feeding your souls and the lethargy and the bloat that results, right? And, and then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. The Messiah shows up there on the banks of the Jordan. And the first thing we see Jesus do to kick off this earthly ministry that ends at the cross and resurrection is that he gets baptized by John in this Jordan River which was a picture of Jesus taking his place in our place, okay? We talked about that last week. So we looked at how baptism isn't just an empty religious ritual. It's an outward proclamation and demonstration of diving into Jesus and what he has done for us and declares over us, right? Jesus in my place, baptized into his life, death, and resurrection, that's what we talked about last week. Full immersion into the love of God in Christ who is your life. Like diving into the fresh waters of the River Jordan after a lifetime of wandering in the desert. And then coming up revived and refreshed and renewed like a resurrection. The imagery is beautiful, filled with his presence and his purpose and even his power. And we saw how it isn't just a demonstration of salvation, it's also a reception of your commission into ministry. That's important. That doesn't mean that you're becoming a pastor when you get baptized. It means you're becoming an ambassador or a representative of Christ with his church. The, the, the royal priesthood of all believers, the chosen and, and holy race. All of us. That's what's happening. And so last week, it, it, an ambassador or representative of Christ with the church. And so last week, we didn't just talk about um, baptism. We got to do it, right? So we baptized six people in the ocean. It was awesome. You can celebrate that. That's amazing. I loved it. So, but before we baptize them, they're on the banks of the ocean in that hot sand, right? We asked them two questions. Do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then second, will you go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? And so the first is about his substitution. Jesus in my place, right? You can't, you don't start with the second one. 
I'll go where he asked me to go and do what he asked me to do, and then he'll save me. That doesn't work. That's actually just faith in yourself, right? That's what the God of this world wants you to believe. But Jesus says, you can't do it. I got to do it for you. You got to trust in me. Do you believe that I, that Jesus has done everything, everything, say everything, everything necessary to save you? Now, will you go where I ask you to go and do what I ask you to do? That's your commission. Will you receive that commission? Again, one is about substitution. The other is about commission, which is our response to the substitution, not an effort to attain or earn it, okay? This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we could not and cannot live. And he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection by paving the way to eternal life with God, the Father, God Almighty, as his sons, as his daughters, as his children, beloved. And it's a relationship and an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. It starts the moment you place your faith and your hope in Christ. It doesn't start the moment you're baptized. It doesn't start the moment you receive communion. It starts the moment you place your faith and hope in Christ. Because he's done everything necessary to save you, and you believe it and you receive it. Okay? And so last week, we really honed in on that first question. Do you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And the title of last week's message was, Jesus in my place. So this morning, we're going to hone in on the second question, though, which is, will you go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? And, and, and we're, we're going to hone in on that question by looking at the very next thing Jesus did after his baptism in Matthew chapter 4, which is, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. We're going to look at this. So the title of the sermon last week was Jesus in my place. And this morning, it's going to be kind of a part two to that with the title, Devil in My Face. Because when he's in the wilderness, this is where he is encountered, or encounters, I should say, because he's led by the Spirit. And the devil comes at him. And I want to show you how important it is here for the Christian, for all Christians, if you are truly a Christian, this is paramount that you develop a strong inner life and an inner dialogue with the Word and Spirit of God. See, the Christian life is a commissioned life for his kingdom. In the midst of a fallen kingdom, you've been called and commissioned to advance the kingdom of light and push back the darkness. This is our commission. And so if you have a mission... That means you have an enemy. You have a tempter. You have an accuser. You have a deceiver. You have an enemy who knows your weaknesses, hates you, and wants to trick and destroy you. So what are we to do? Cower? Does that scare you? Are we... To live paranoid and paralyzed, not think about it? Oh, no, I don't want to talk about spiritual things because that scares me. 
Is that what we're called to do? To, to not make any big moves, but to shy away from spiritual or gospel things altogether? I don't want to get in that conversation. It's just not worth it. I'm just going to continue on my way and just kind of stay out of trouble. Is that what? No. That, guys, that's what he wants. That's what the enemy's trying to get you to do. He wants you to, but King Jesus has commissioned us to go. He's called us to plunder hell and populate heaven and expand the kingdom and assault the gates of hell. To live on the offensive, not the defensive. This is the gospel. And to do it not in our power and strength, but to trust in him, in his call, in his deliverance, and his victory. Because it's already been won. This is our calling. But when you do, inevitably, you're going to encounter very real opposition and even accusation. So the question is, how do we overcome? And the answer is pretty simple. You look to the one who already has. Okay? Remember, we don't just have an enemy. We have a defeated enemy. Amen? Some of you are like, this is This is intense. See, Jesus doesn't just send us out on a mission. He commissions us. He goes before us, and he goes with us, and he comes beside of us, and he's all around us, and he's even within us, and he promises to never leave or forsake you in the midst of it all. And so the way we fight is by pulling up to the table of fellowship with our Father and feasting even in the presence of the enemy. You see, the way we resist is by beholding, and the way we best the devil is by finding rest in Christ in the midst of it all. And so I'll walk through Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. We're going to break it down into three main scenes of temptation that Jesus faced, and we all still face even consistently in this world. Whether you adhere to the stuff or not, this is how the enemy comes at you. But as we're going to see, even what the enemy means for harm, God can use for our good and even the expansion of his kingdom. Okay? So as a framework for the rest of our time, the temptations come in three main scenes. Okay? So the first scene is lust. The second scene is trust. And the third scene is dust. I'm going to explain what all that means, all right? So lust, trust, and dust. These are the three scenes. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. We overcome daily temptation by feasting in fellowship on the daily bread of Christ. We overcome daily temptation by feasting in fellowship. Say fellowship. On the daily bread of Christ. Look with me now at Matthew 4, uh, verse 1. Verse 1 and 2 says this, then Jesus, so right after he's baptized, okay, and the father has declared, this is my son in whom, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He then says, Matthew 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. All right? So Jesus just received his baptism from John the Spirit, John the Spirit, Lord. John the Baptist. (laughs) 
And, and he, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even he, he's, he's, he's told everybody that is around that he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. He's not even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And then as Jesus comes out of the water, the sky opens up and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And the Father, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's so important because if you're in Christ and Jesus is in fact in your place, if you've received that reality by faith, then those words are spoken over you. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. You've got to get, this is primary. This is what Jesus came to graft us into, okay? This is the identity we're given in Christ. It's your sonship. It's the Father delighting in you. It's that intimate, unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending, steadfast love and approval and acceptance and affirmation that continually flows directly from the throne of heaven that not only gives you all the feels, right, but also calls you to storm the gates of hell as you journey toward your ultimate promised land. This is our context. Like it or not, this is your context. And notice it's the spirit that leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the question is, will you actually go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? Do you trust him? And how do you even know what that is? I mean, really? Like, if we learn anything from this passage, it's that God isn't the only supernatural voice out there. So just because something supernatural happens, that doesn't mean it's God. We live in a world that is absolutely jam-packed with demonic and evil forces. Rulers, principalities, authorities of this dark and evil age, okay? So, so... Like, how do we navigate this? And I mean, look, as we're reading through this, it's not even clear that Jesus recognizes these temptations to be from the devil until the third temptation way down in verse 10. Like, it's likely that we're simply given insight into Christ's inner thought life here. Think about this. He's been alone for 40 days and 40 nights with nothing to eat. And it says that after those 40 days, he's hungry. I bet he is. So, and, and it says that that's when the enemy comes to him. After he's hungry. Also, this isn't like a craving kind of hungry. Like, it's not like, man, I could crush some nachos right now. That's not, that's not what it means, right? He's talking about starving kind of hungry. 40 days and 40 nights is a long time without food. That's why I think it says 40 days and nights, because it's like counting the nights. If you've ever been hungry, that night's a long night, right? And all day and all night, Jesus has had this ongoing inner dialogue in his inner thought life with the Father. But the enemy doesn't come to him until he's good and starving. That's when he strikes and his thought life begins to take on a different flavor. It doesn't happen while the sky is open and the Spirit's manifest presence is close, right? It doesn't happen during the, the, the blatant declaration that he's his beloved and that he's pleased with him. Like it happens weeks later when he's starving, tired, and feeling alone. That's how the enemy attacks. Especially after a spiritual high, he will come to steal, 
kill and destroy any joy, affirmation, or security you might have received. That's what he does. That's when that strange thought begins to enter your heart and mind. Did any of that even really happen? Or did I just imagine it? Like, did God really say that? Cue the first scene. Lust. Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now again, I doubt the devil shows up here like a bright red dragon. Right? This is subtle and it's sneaky. It's that seed thought just planted in your mind, in your heart. Did God really say that? And before he offers the temptation, he assaults his identity. Look at this. He goes after his sonship. He tries to make him question the love of the Father. Like, if, if you're the Son of God, you see how subtle it is? He doesn't really care about you. You need to fight for yourself. You need to fend for yourself. You can't trust him to provide. Like, he just wants you to suffer pointlessly. Is he even real anyway? Did any of that stuff even really happen? Just face it, you're on your own. You're alone. You might as well indulge. After all, this is all there is. Of course, he doesn't outright say any of that, right? It's all at a subconscious level. It's his, it's his thought life, right? He just tempts with how good that immediate gratification would be. All this other stuff's just swirling. And so often we don't even resist, man. Like we, we, we live out of that self-centered orientation our whole lives. This isn't even barely a temptation. It's just a given. But that just shows how gripped by sin the human heart actually is. Like, in fact, Jesus came to show us what true humanity actually looks like. And what we see is that true humanity, untainted by sin, was created to be actually Godward and selfless. Philippians 2.6 tells us that Jesus, although in the form of God, did not count equality with God even a thing to be grasped or, or like something to be used for his own personal benefit. Now remember the gospel is Jesus in my place. And so these temptations, in these temptations, we're seeing how Jesus succeeds where everyone else has fallen short. Praise God. Right? In fact, Genesis 3 verse 1, way back in the garden, the enemy offers the apple as something attractive, something appealing, something physically gratifying. But it's a gratification apart from God. Do you see it? But where Adam and Eve feasted apart from God, Jesus took his seat at the table of fellowship with the Father. Even in the presence of the enemy. Look at how Jesus responds. But he answered, it is written, so he's quoting scripture, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So now he's not just rattling off a memorized verse here. This response comes from a place of depth and internalization. 
In fact, Jesus is quoting a rebuke that Moses gave to the Israelites after they failed their wilderness temptation. Moses rebukes them for not trusting in the Lord to provide for them. Exodus 16.3, the people, it says, moaned. Would that we had died in Egypt. That's where they were enslaved. God's just delivered them from slavery and he takes them through the desert. And these are wood that we had died in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You ever questioned the motives of God? There's something behind that but it doesn't make you any less accountable for it, right? I want you to see the patience of God on display as he shows his people so much patience and kindness. Even, we're talking Old Testament. Instead of leaving them in the desert to die, which is what they deserved, or letting them go back to their slavery, which is what they deserved and even wanted, he provided daily bread from heaven every single morning in the wilderness, in the desert, to satisfy their hunger. It was called manna from heaven. But they couldn't get more than just enough every morning. Just enough to eat, just enough daily. But it was more than just survival food. It was designed to point them to who Jesus would one day be for all God's people. You see, Jesus is the greater manna. He is the bread of life, but he's more than just survival food. He's that which brings flourishing and thriving to his people and the one who delivers his people through the desert and into the ultimate promised land, right? But here we see him walking through the very steps that they failed and the steps that you and I fail and all to bring redemption to us all. Jesus in my place. And so before the Israelites entered the promised land, when their wilderness journey had ended, Moses kind of stops. They're kind of like right on the border, and Moses begins to review the failings of the wilderness generation so that Israel would never repeat their sins. Deuteronomy 8.3, this is what he says. This is how he, one of the recaps. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this passage means a lot to Jesus. That's why he's quoting it right here. There's a lot going on. He's experiencing the hunger they experienced. He's experiencing the temptation they experienced. But his feast is a heavenly one. And he pulls up to his father's table and he's digging in. Like maybe he imagines or in some sense even remembers the grumbling and complaining. But Jesus did not grumble. He did not complain. He was satisfied in the feast with his father, and lust had no sway over him. Jesus isn't shaken by his appetites. He stays true to the Lord. He's remembering in the dark of the desert what he heard in the light of the Jordan. This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So the thought doesn't even get a grip because as soon as he says, if you are God's son, Jesus is like, well, if? He remembers in the dark of the desert what he heard in the light of the Jordan. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. But the enemy here isn't done yet, right? So his temptation to lust was a bust. But now it's on the scene too, which is trust. A little too Dr. Seuss for you. I'm I got, I got small kids that just deal with it. Um, 
All right, so cue the next scene, trust. Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you hear it? If you are the son, does God really say that? Suddenly Jesus is on top of the temple and he, attempt, he tempts Jesus, he's tempted to jump by the enemy, right? So now I remember, I want you to get a picture here. The pinnacle of the temple overlooked the Kidron Valley, okay? Which means that if he jumped, it's over, right? That's high. So is Jesus suicidal? Is that what this is? Is that what's going on here? No, the temptation isn't to end his life. That wouldn't be tempting to Jesus, right? The real temptation here is to force the Father to act. Let me say that again. The real temptation here is to force the Father to act. Satan's trying to provoke distrust in Jesus towards the Father. If you jump from here and then you float down without harm, you'll have proof of God's protection and provision over your life. He even quotes scripture to him, which shows you that just because you read the Bible doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to apply it with wisdom from the Spirit. It ain't about what's in here. It's about what gets in here. It's not about how much you know. It's about how much what you know points you to deeper intimacy with the Lord. This is about his word and his spirit. Our feast with him is a feast of fellowship. Otherwise, it's just information. Look, Satan knows the Bible way better than you do. I don't care how many times you've read it, I don't, how much, I don't care how much you've memorized, he knows it better. But he knows nothing of true dependence upon a good father. Right? So Satan says, force his hand. Then you'll know. Then you'll have proof. Then you won't even need faith. You hear it? How many times have you heard people say, God, if you'll just do this miracle, then, then I'll tell everybody. Then they'll know that you're real if you do this miracle. And some people even think that revival only happens in response to miracles. Like if God does more miracles, then people will suddenly believe and get saved. Is that how it works? But Jesus actually talked about these people in Luke 16, 31, saying that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets or the message itself, then they won't even believe if a man rises from the dead. But the truth is, and we see that that's actually what happened, right? Those same people with hardened hearts, even with the resurrection, it wasn't enough for them. But the truth is, is that it often, when that, those things happen, we're always craving miracles. It, it, and it often can create more self-centered people who aren't hungering after the Lord. They're just hungering after what he can give them. We saw this with the masses after Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread. You remember this? And they start chasing after him. And he's like, you don't want me as Lord. You just want more bread. That's the context in which he says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. All the miracles, all of that stuff was all just designed to point you to Jesus. 
And so the Lord doesn't desire us to hunger and thirst for signs and wonders and miracles. He desires us to hunger for himself. Now, he is the God of signs and wonders and miracles. He is a miracle worker, he's a way maker, and he's a healer. He is the God who is able, amen? And he does this stuff today. He does it way more than I think most of us even believe. You need to hear me. The gospel doesn't follow signs and wonders. Signs and wonders often, though, follow the gospel. It's secondary. It's not the point. Now, that's no reason to lean into unbelief, though, okay? A lot of people are like, oh, well, we don't care about this stuff now. We just care about... Listen, in fact, I'd say, I'd say that it's more reason to faithfully pray for healing and breakthrough and the miraculous. It's more reason to have faith that God is able and willing. It's, in fact, part of his good kingdom and his good heart for his children, But if you're spending more time praying for personal breakthrough just so your life can be more comfortable now than you are for the salvation of your city and your family and your friends, then you're missing the point of your commission. You guys getting that? The devil twists. Look at this. This is Psalm 91. He's quoting Psalm 91 to the word of God himself who is Jesus in the flesh, and he's twisting Psalm 91, which is actually a psalm about receiving peace and deliverance in the midst of distress. And then he, but he turns it into this entitled right to force God to act whenever we want, however we want. And if he doesn't, he must not be a good father after all. Or we must not really be his beloved children if he doesn't do what we want, when we want, how we want. Do you see it? This is how the enemy tempts. This is what he does. This is how he rolls. Like if you want to see breakthrough happen, if you want to see the spirit of revival and his spirit break out in Virginia Beach, start praying for that mountain of separation between those far from God to be tossed into the sea. Not just the mountain of get me that better job. Now God loves about, he wants you to get a better job. It's okay. That's good. Right? But if that's what's consuming your life, then you're caring more about your kingdom than his. Seek first his kingdom, all else will be added unto you. You see it? So start praying for your neighbors to get wrecked by the gospel of Jesus Christ and let him lead you to speak up and reap that harvest. That's when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust that all else will be added unto us, which is what Jesus promised in Matthew 6. Ultimately, the temptation here, though, is mental. It's a temptation to exclude God from the equation and place yourself at the center and only look to God when you need something. That's how this goes. It's the temptation to believe that God moves and acts on our time when we want at the volume we desire. As if the sky's opening and the spirit descending and the father's voice declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, was not enough. Look, if that's not enough, then nothing ever will be. And you'll be jumping from the highest peaks for the rest of your life, running from one miracle that you don't really believe in to the other. Forgetful and fickle, tormented by the enemy. Just like the Israelites were. Guys, some of the most faithless people I know have experienced some of the most powerful miracles I've ever witnessed. I'm going to say that again. Some of the most powerful miracles I've ever seen were experienced by some of the most faithless people. And no, that's not a good thing. 
Yes, God is patient and he's merciful and he's so good to them. Praise God, right? But I'd rather experience one miracle and believe it than 5,000 I continually forget and dismiss. You see, the temptation here is to place your trust in yourself rather than God. It's the desire to be fully independent and have no need for faith. Just jumping from one powerful encounter to another instead of walking with him in the whole process. But our relationship with him, it is about reliance upon him. It's an intentional attention to his spirit. And that's when we live naturally supernatural. We can tend to find a reason to check out relationally, right? Like this is kind of what our hearts do. Think about the way the devil tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 5 through 6. For God knows that when you eat of it, talking about this apple, this is, this is Satan tempting them. Said, if, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you see it? It's a temptation to no longer need God. It's a temptation to run or, or to turn God into just a tool for making you awesome. To make the Bible just another self-help book to be enough in yourself, right? And have no need of God. And yet the Bible's all about sonship with the Father in Jesus Christ. This is our identity. This is Christ's identity. And here the devil is trying to, like the same tactic he used in Genesis 3 and the same tactic that he used against Israel in Exodus 17 on Jesus. The Israelites were traveling through the desert and they had no water, right? This is a similar situation. So they start quarreling with Moses and they're demanding, give us water to drink. This is Exodus 17. Give us water to drink. Moses replies, why do you test the Lord? And then the people grumbled. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? So they say it again. Right? Things got so bad that they were actually going to stone Moses to death, it says. But then it says Moses prayed and God led him to strike a rock from which water poured out. Exodus 17 verse 7 says this. Which, by the way, that's a picture of Jesus, the rock of our salvation, from which living water flows. You see it? You see it? Come by fount? It's awesome. Exodus 17, verse 7 says, And Moses called the name of that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. This is what happens when you trust in self and not the Lord. And because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Did God even say that? Is he even with us? The Lord delivered them from Egypt through 10 miraculous plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them daily manna from heaven to eat. And all it did was make them demand more from him and give it to me now. I need it now. That's what it did in them. But Jesus doesn't demand or test or try to manipulate God. Jesus doesn't demand to know all that's happening even. Jesus just trusts his Father and he lives by faith. 
He's tuned in. He's honed in. He's feasting on his own sonship, and he responds to the enemy saying in verse 7, Jesus said to him, Matthew 4, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Which is, again, a direct quote from Moses to the Israelites in the desert in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. So the enemy not only tries to get us to doubt our identity, he also tries to get us to remove our need for God altogether. And he does it, um, he does it with us by trying to get us to remove our need for the cross. I'll show you what I mean. He's constantly trying to get us to think about how successful we are, how good we are, and compare ourselves to others in order to find our value through self-worth apart from God. He'll puff you up and he'll tear you down with the same tactic. Like, look how far you've come in such a short amount of time. You're so young. Started at the bottom, now we're here. Right? You're so successful for your age. Or, 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 or you should be further along than you are. Is this what your life, is this what you thought your life was going to be like? Like so many people think Satan's attacks are like occult stuff, like magic spells and witchcraft, which, yeah, that's, that can be stuff, but that's a thing. That is a thing. And most people are like petrified of that stuff. But you've got to understand that stuff, that's the kiddie pool. That's the easy stuff. You know where the big guns are? When he goes at your own self-sufficiency, that's when he's aiming the big guns. That's where he's aiming the big guns. Self-sufficiency or lack thereof, no need for God. So what does Jesus do when Satan takes these shots at him? He remembers in the dark what he heard in the light. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. No need to lust. The father's all I need. No need to trust in myself. I can trust in the Lord. I don't have to have it all figured out. Often the attempt to figure it all out is just another attempt to be God and have no need for him. You see it? But you don't need to have it all figured out to receive his grace and his sonship. In fact, the only way to receive it is to acknowledge that you don't have it all figured out and you need him and you need to trust him. This is the power of this thing. It's the revelation that without him, it's all just ashes and dust. Without him, it's all just vanity. But with him, we're heirs of the promise, sons and daughters, royal, chosen, blessed, a people for his own possession, which leads us to the final scene of temptation. Dust. Matthew 4, verse 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Jesus is presented here with his own destiny. Think about that. He's confronted with a vision of the kingdom that he was actually sent by the Father to rescue and redeem. And, and, and here they are. They're spread out before him like, in all their glory like Christmas morning. <laughs> like, I actually love this part because it's like... I. It would have been everything Jesus desired. It's a part of his mission. It's his heart. There it is. It would have stuck right, struck right down to the core of who he is and his mission, redeeming and restoring these, this kingdom to glory. That was his purpose, delivering them from tyranny and oppression and taking his place as their true king. And so the enemy here is tempting Jesus with his own destiny. 
But imagine the look of love in Christ's eyes for the vision of the kingdom. Like there would have been a gleam in his eye that I actually think probably is what provoked Satan to take this final shot. The thing is, though, that the glory of the kingdom is the glory of God. The kingdom has no glory without the Lord. You see it? Without God, there's no real glory. It's just a lie. Now, until now, watch this, it's likely that Jesus didn't recognize the enemy. Perhaps this was just the inner dialogue of his own thought life, but here Satan shows his hand. He exposes himself. Because before this, it's like, well, I could turn these stones to bread, but why would I? My father loves me, and he'll take care of me. That one's easy, right? Next. I could probably jump off this pinnacle and float safely down to the ground in the hands of the angels, but why would I? I know the father loves me, and I trust him. I don't need to test that to figure it out. I trust him. And then here, this vision of the kingdom may have also slipped past as just another thought, maybe even a hopeful expectation of his mission until verse 9. And it says, Matthew 4, verse 9, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, It's like, aha! Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus immediately knows this isn't God, and he tells Satan to be gone. So here's the question. How does Jesus know this is Satan? And how can you and I discern the leading of the Spirit from the voice of the enemy? Good question, right? Again, Jesus has been feasting on his fellowship with the Father. He knows his Father's voice, and he knows his Father's character. Even when Scripture's thrown at him, he knows when it's being twisted because he knows the heart of God, not just the Word of God. He knows what the Word of God is pointing us to because he's not just feasting on information. He's feasting on fellowship. You see this? This is the key in discerning whether something is from God or of God or not. It's not just about knowing God's word. That's important, very important. And we should be feasting on God's word daily, but not just on his word, his word and spirit. It's a feast of fellowship, not just information. It's not just about memorizing verses. It's about falling deeper in love with the heart of God and aligning with it. Memorizing those verses is just going to help you call it attention when you need it. And now it becomes like ammunition, like a machine gun at the enemy. You see it? It's important. It's good. Satan is tempting Jesus here with his own destiny. He's, he's tempting him to be the king of glory over the nations. That's also what the Father has for Jesus, though. The only difference is that Satan excludes the cross. Think about that. Satan's like, do this. I'll give you all these things if you would bow down and worship me. You don't even have to go to the cross. Satan loves to exclude the cross. This is what he does. You don't have to die. There's no need for all that. Sin isn't that big of a deal anyway. You can receive all that glory and all these kingdoms. You don't even have to go to the cross. Isn't that what Satan offers everyone? Like, in some way, that's what he's after. Like, you don't need the cross. Sin's not that big of a deal. You can get your kingdom, and you don't even need God. His ways are actually holding you back from getting what you actually want. 
that moment of integrity, that moment where you're choosing that championship or what God might be leading you towards. Often you have to die to self in order to operate out this. What does it gain a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul, right? You think about these things. You don't need the cross. The temptation here is to choose God's gifts over God himself. But you can't ignore God's ways if you want to operate in his will. That's why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he laid his life down in sacrifice on the cross, we see him praying to the Father, asking that the cup of suffering and wrath would be taken from him. Like he knew what was in store, and he was asking if there's any other way, and yet his ultimate prayer was not my will, but yours be done. He knew, even in the darkest night of the soul, that his Father's way is the only way that ultimately matters, even when it's difficult. In fact, I think that here in the wilderness of Matthew 4, we're getting a foretaste of the temptation that Jesus would face in the garden of Matthew 26, the night he willingly lays down his life to be crucified. And yes, there is a reason why there are themes of wilderness and garden throughout the Bible. That's a nugget. See, Jesus didn't need the cross to be with the Father. He didn't. He didn't. Think about it. Jesus didn't need to go to the cross in order to experience intimate eternity with his Father. He didn't, Jesus doesn't need the cross, but we do. You do, I do. So his willingness to go to the cross was completely selfless. Do you see it? Like Hebrews 12, 2 says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. A lot of people say that joy was the joy of the Father, and I agree that it's the joy of the Father, but he didn't need the cross in order to have the, joys, the joy of his Father. He had it. The joy he shared with his father, though, was the joy of rescuing his people. That's you and me. And that's your neighbors, and that's your coworkers, and that's your friends who are far from God. This is the commission that we've been invited into. Right? Chasing glory apart from the cross in their own strength. That's what this world is operating out of. Like That's the temptation Satan offers everyone. Choose self over Savior. But the only way to true glory is through the cross. Everything else is just a godless pursuit for a kingdom of dust and ashes. Vanity, vanity, vanity. It's just an empty chasing of the wind for security and control and power, which, hear me, always ends in insecurity, anxiety, and torment. Always. Without God, it's just a kingdom of dust and an invitation to worship the enemy. Also, have you ever wondered... Why Satan presumes to have authority even to offer this kingdom? Like, what gives him the right to offer the kingdom of man to Jesus in the first place? Like, it's not just because he's arrogant. It's because he has a legal, legitimate right to do so because he is the ruler over this fallen world. That's why he's called the prince of darkness. This entire world stands under condemnation outside of Christ. That's why we need the cross and the devil is the kingpin. Jesus himself calls him the ruler of this world in John 14, 30. And he declares that he has no claim on him. The ruler of this world has got a claim on all of you, but he does not have a claim on me. So for those who are in Christ, because of the cross and resurrection, he has no claim on you either. That's the beauty of this. 
But hear me, guys, there's no middle ground here. You're either in Christ or you're subject to the ruler of this world, the kingdom of darkness. You're either citizens of the kingdom of heaven or of this world. Do you see it? Jesus came to bring us salvation. The only separation between those two things is the cross. Because this is what Jesus came to do. And these are the people Jesus came to rescue and redeem. That's exactly what he did. And so what we're seeing here is Satan's attempt to subvert the cross, to be rid of it. There's no need for it. It's why people love getting rid of hell, because if there's no hell, there's no need for the cross. But it's through the cross that Jesus purchases the kingdom. That's how he actually attains it in God's way. But when we lean into sin... We indulge the flesh and we give legal right to the enemy in that area of our life because behind every carnal temptation, the enemy lies crouching like a ravenous beast ready to grip you and consume you. This is why there's no such thing as an innocent or harmless sin. That's some nonsense. You need to hear this. He's sneaky. He's deceptive. He's full of tricks. Indulging sin is like opening a door. Thankfully, we have an all-sufficient Savior. So how do we avoid falling prey to these tricks? Like, how do we know, again, what voice to dismiss and which voice to lean into? Here's how you know. Four things. His Word, His Spirit, his church, and a whole lot of humility. Like, if you think you got this thing figured out, pride goes before the fall. Right? That's why we hold it with an open hand and we say, God, there are things that are true. There are things that are revealed that are absolutely true. Right? Here's what we know is true. Jesus in my place. Right? But if you're like, God, you told me, you told me that this was going to happen. It's like, well, hold it like this, in humility. Because oftentimes what we try to do, guys, is we try to figure out a way to have no need anymore to keep paying attention to him. You see this? God's constantly calling us to give him our attention, not because he needs it, because we need it. So not long after this, Matthew 6, look at this, I'm wrapping it up. Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven. So the first thing I want you to see is that we're praying this together. Our, our Father. Say, Our Father. So what's the first thing Jesus wants us to remember here? Sonship. That's the first thing that Jesus is teaching. He's like, this is how I want you to pray. This is, he teaches us this Not long after he's come out of the wilderness. He says, our Father in heaven. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. So so then the next, he's saying, don't just remember the title, but operate in it. To call the creator of the universe Father, that address isn't allowed for slaves. Children. Okay? And he says, hallowed be your name. Not my name, not our name, your name. Then verse 10 Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom, not our kingdom, yours. Right? Not my will, your will. And then he says something really helpful. If you'll receive it, give us this day our daily bread. 
That's more than just give me some food today. Yes, it's about provision, but more than that, it's about the provision of himself, right? This is, remember, he's just walked through the temptation from Satan. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word of the Lord. And who is the word of the Lord? Jesus, the word made flesh, right? He is the bread of life. In fact, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all that other stuff, you you don't have to be so concerned with because it's going to be added unto you. Daily, daily, daily feast on our daily bread, which is Jesus. He's the word of God made flesh. Jesus himself, bread of life, and all who hunger and thirst for his righteousness are blessed and will be satisfied. He said again, right before this and right after his wilderness temptation in Matthew 5. He then tells them to pray, verse 12, and forgive us our debts or trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who trespassed against us. Remember, this is his mission. This is what he's after. This is why he was led into the desert to begin with, to forgive and redeem those who sinned against him, to live the life they couldn't live and then die the death they deserved to die. That goes for Adam. That goes for uh, the Israelites. And that goes for you and I. And he's calling us all to ask for and receive that forgiveness and offer it freely to one another, which requires God's help, which is, again, why this is the prayer that he's teaching us to pray. A lot of people call this the Lord's Prayer, right? You ever heard this called the Lord's Prayer? It's not the Lord's Prayer. This is the church's prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually in John 17. That's a whole other sermon. But this is the prayer that God has called us to pray together. Look at the last line of this prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or, or the evil one. You think that might have something to do with the wilderness experience you just had? Now follow me here. Jesus teaches us to ask God to give us each day our daily bread, which is himself, that all-satisfying, greater than manna from heaven, word and spirit. And then he leads us, he says, and then lead us not, say not, into temptation. Now why doesn't it just say lead us away from temptation or out of temptation? It's kind of like weird wording. It's like it's trying to communicate something that's a little bit awkward. Because in the Lord's Prayer in John 17, 15 through 17, the true Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say remove them. He's not telling us to hide. This doesn't mean, again, This doesn't mean that you're supposed to go like, go sit in a strip club in order to fight Satan and temptation. That's not what this means, okay? That's foolishness. Don't do that, okay? Bad idea. But the point here is that this world, in this world, you're going to face temptation. In this world, you live in a world ruled by the enemy. He's going to get in your face. It's going to happen, especially if you're operating in your commission. So the point here is to discern and dismiss we're going to talk about this a little later but in the series, but every gift that you're given in Christ will be refined through temptation to self, 
which is why it's so important to develop your inner life, to lean into the Spirit of God through the Word of God for the glory of God and feast on Jesus, who is the bread of life, because he's prepared a place for you at the table of fellowship with the Father, even in the presence of your enemy. And so the question is, though, will you take your seat and lean into him, or will you try and go at it alone? When you lean into Jesus in spirit and in truth, through his word and spirit, not only will the enemy flee, but you'll be further equipped to expand his kingdom and partner together in this great commission. All for his glory. And it is a joyful, glorious thing. Operating as sons and daughters of the Most High King in the greatest purpose and mission eternity's ever known. Let's pray.